0: We will be reading this morning for our sermon text from Joel chapter 2, verses 12 to 17. Joel chapter 2, verses 12 to 17. And then we'll be turning to Luke chapter 23 to read a section from there, beginning in verse 26 and ending in verse 49, if you'd like to turn there as well. Joel chapter 2, verses 12 to 17. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering, and a drink offering from the Lord your God. Blow a trumpet in Zion. Consecrate a fast. Call a solemn assembly. Gather the people. Consecrate the congregation. Assemble the elders. Gather the children, even nursing infants. Let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber. Between the vestibule and the altar, let the priests, the ministers of the Lord, weep and say, Spare your people, O Lord. And make not your heritage a reproach, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, Where is their God? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We'll turn now to Luke chapter 23, verses 26 to 29. Excuse me, verse 26 to 49. Luke chapter 23, verses 26 to 49. And as they led him away, they seized one Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country and laid laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And there followed him a great multitude of people and... And of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Zion, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, Cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry?' Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him, and when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him, and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots and divided his his garments. And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for, the, for this spectacle, when they, had, when they saw what had taken place, returned home beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood a distance, watching these things. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's uh, bow our heads in prayer. Father, indeed, your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. So we ask now that that very reality would be true for us, that you would guide us, that you'd convict us, and that you would speak a good word in the gospel of Jesus Christ to us in the teaching of your word. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we started this series under the guise of cult gone wrong, that there was a a worship crisis in the land of Israel that had precipitated these oracles of judgment the opening uh, chapter gives the threat of pending judgment, and then in the first 11 verses of this chapter, we hear that nothing is left out, and there is almost no hope for the people to alter or avert the judgment that's coming, and nothing will escape it. They've blown it big time. So the book of Joel and its cyclical oracles of judgment indicates, uh, at a very base level, man's incapability to be the priests that we were created to be, to offer to God the kind of pure worship that we were created to offer Him. We pale so far in, compar- in comparison to the holiness of God and the obedience that He calls us to that there's really, you could, you could say there's not much we can do, but the reality is that there's nothing we can do. And so these oracles of judgment really make our state plain when it threatens uh, absolute destruction with no escape. This is your fate, and you know, uh, you'd really better figure it out what to do because there, there's no escape. You, you can't do anything on your own. We've got, we've got a big problem, don't we? This is something that I think needs to be made plain to us because. I think one of the natural impulses of our heart is uh, that we're very quick to try to justify ourselves, to try to make excuses or, as it were, hide from God as he takes a stroll through the garden. We don't want to be confronted with this problem. We don't want to be confronted with how desperate our situation or how sinful we are, and we don't want to accept just how toast we are. But when it's made plain in the oracle of the day of the Lord, in the first 11 verses of chapter 2, in this encroaching army that leaves nothing in its wake, that comes in even through the windows, that scales its walls, that has soldiers who are not afraid, I'm confronted. I'm confronted. So, so what can I do then? If I can't run, I can't flee, if... If these soldiers don't cower in fear, if there's no wall large enough to stop them, what can I do? This passage tells me the same Lord who ushers a prophetic oracle of apocalyptic destruction here takes the initiative, extending an invitation to his people to repent. And so I can rest and I can rely on the welcoming arms of the Father to forgive me. And and therefore, I can actually heed that call to repent and cry out for mercy, certain that God Himself will prove Himself to be my God. And I want to cover that this morning in three ways the first, the Lord's mercy. The second, the urgent assembly. And the third, the mediated cry. The Lord's mercy, the urgent assembly, the mediated cry. So, first, the Lord's mercy. In this first point, we're covering verses 12 to 14, and we want to key in on a couple of uh, points. First, the point is demonstrated very clearly in the concessive opening that the Lord uh, is extraordinarily gracious. Even now, even now, God gives grace despite all of the wickedness, despite the rampant failure, even now. Even now, in the midst of this oncoming, looming destruction, inescapable destruction, God still offers this glimmer of hope through repentance. And not only is this out there, not only can they repent, but He is also so faithful to His covenant and to His promise that He calls them to return to Him. That's notable. He doesn't just leave them and say, you can do this if you want. He calls, return to me, he says. Come to me, he says. He wants this. And how does he call them to return to him? Well, reflected in their demeanor, in their behavior, when they return should be fasting, should be weeping, should be mourning. So their emotional response ought to reflect the true and the inward nature of their contrition, of their sorrow for their sin, and thus show itself actually to be with their whole person, with all their heart. If all of their heart is returning, then their whole person will be overwhelmed by emotional response, by weeping and by mourning. The inference here is that God is not looking for a feigned return, but that the whole person is caught up in and overwhelmed with sorrow with all their heart. And I think in in, in some ways, this is a very good picture of what good and genuine repentance should look like. When we see just how grave our sin is, when we see just how grave and significant the judgment of the Lord is, and in the midst of that, how gracious He is that He should call us to return to Him, when we look at all three of these things, we are undone. We're pierced to the bone. It's something we can't quite perceive and handle. It overwhelms our emotions. You'll notice in verse 13 that he says, Rend your hearts and not your garments. This further demonstrates the reality that God is not interested in a formal or merely outward display. This is the only time in the Old Testament where the people are told to tear their hearts open instead of their garments. Elsewhere we see garments commanded. Now traditionally the tearing of one's garments was a show of extreme lament and sorrow to show that someone was undone in a similar way to the tearing of their clothes. But true repentance is not just an outward display and a mere outward repent and repentance. And that can't suffice in an instance like this. God knows the heart and inward change is required. This is demonstrated very clearly in 2 Chronicles chapter 6 and 7 which has quite a few parallels with our passage. There Solomon has just finished building the temple and in a display of extreme hope and trust in the Lord and joy he pours out his heart in a Very long prayer to the Lord on behalf of the people. So the temple is complete. The Lord has fulfilled his promise that he's made to David, that his son would sit on the throne and build a house for the Lord. And in the middle of this prayer, in this time of joy, in this time of celebration, he starts listing all of these hypothetical situations which seem odd and misplaced in this time of joy and faithful celebration when the people have a very harmonious and bountiful relationship with the Lord. He says, if there is a famine or pestilence or caterpillar or plague or sickness or an army invades and defeats Israel, sounds similar to the first oracle of locust and the second one of pending judgment through army. If when that happens, a prayer by any man or woman is offered up, each knowing his affliction and his own sorrow and stretching out his hands towards this house, then hear from heaven your dwelling place and forgive and render to each one whose heart you know according to all his ways. For you, you only know the hearts of all the children of mankind that they fear you. So God knows the hearts of his people. He can perceive true and genuine repentance, and that's what he wants here, that each would rend open his heart before the Lord. Then in chapter 7, the Lord appears to Solomon after this prayer, and he says this, If my people who are called by my name in these situations humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will turn Uh, Then I will hear them from heaven, and I will forgive their sin and heal their land. Now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to the prayer that is made in this place. So, Joel, the prophet, can declare, As a prophet sent from God, with honesty and certainty, He can declare that he is actually gracious gracious and merciful and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He promised to the people through Solomon to hear these cries, to look upon them, to forgive them, and to heal their land. So he can do this. He can he can say, Rend your hearts. Because God is gracious and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and mercy, because it's part of the covenantal nature of God to keep his word, this word that he promised to Solomon, that if in these circumstances his people would call out and rend their hearts before him, he would hear them and he would be attentive to their cry. Why can you tear your heart open and rip your heart apart in contrition and sorrow and repentance because he actually is who he claims to be. He demonstrates that. He is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and mercy. Not only that, but he will relent over disaster. But wait a second. He will? Is it not as in verse 14 expresses uncertain? who knows whether he will not turn and relent not at all this is a, a idiomatic phrase in hebrew ecclesiastes 321 for example has a similar uses uses the same literary tool it says who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes downward into the earth uh, the point conveyed in this phrase these who knows phrases is often rhetorical, and actually the answer is, we do know. So when it says, who knows whether or not he will turn and relent, it's actually saying, we know, this is his promise. Not only will he hear, but instead, he will leave behind a blessing with them. The grain and the drink offering that throughout this book we have seen have been cut off from the people, signifying that they themselves are not pleasing to the Lord, as, the, as that sweet aroma rose up to heaven, God will restore. So God will take action to enable the people to be blessed in his sight again through these offerings, and through it he will restore to them their joy, joy which had been cut off because these, these, these offerings had been cut off. It's interesting One commentator noted that the prerequisite to the repentance or relenting on God's part is always the result of the repentance of the people in response to the prophetic word. So God is actually the one who initiates this whole thing through his word. Whoa. You know what God wants when we're steeped in patterned sin? He wants you to return to Him, to cry out with your whole heart and to be torn in two. And how does He do this? How does He accomplish this? Through His Word. So what's the the surest fix? What's the surest remedy that God gives to His people that they might abandon their sin and come to Him and be convicted and be torn in two? His Word. And He is the one that initiates this whole thing. He's the one that calls them to repent. And what's missing during this time of grievous sin, during this time of, of patterned sin where the people are in this worship crisis, this cult gone wrong? As indicated by the grain in the drink offering, a sense of joy because we lack His pleasure with us. We lack a sense of communion with Him. That's why He calls us to Return to him, because sin always creates a breach in that relationship. And what does he restore after we come to him and repent? A sense of his pleasure and communion. He restores the relationship. We're going to be short on time this morning, so I'm not going to go into it, but I would encourage you this afternoon or this week to go and look at the fifth head of doctrine in the Canons of Dort. And look at articles 4 through 7 in particular. There they treat the way that God deals with those who do fall into pattern sin, the way that he robs our pleasure of himself, only to restore it to us. Now, once he's given that word, once he's called us to repent, assured us of his covenantal graciousness, what do the people do? Well, they heed that call. They gather in urgent assembly. And this is our second point. We'll be covering verse 15 to 16 here. If you'd like to look down at it with me. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Consecrate a fast. Call a solemn assembly. Gather the people. Consecrate the congregation. Assemble the elders. Gather the children, even nursing infants. Let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber. So once again, as we saw last week, there is this call to blow a trumpet in Zion, but this time, instead of it signaling a looming and approaching army for which the ramparts should immediately be mounted, the walls should be flustered with troops, it is a signal to, to consecrate a, a solemn fast and a solemn assembly to a time of great lamentation and repentance. And there is an extreme sense of urgency in this and to this because now is the time for decision if the judgment of God is to be averted. This is represented by the fact that in these two short verses there are seven imperatives blow the trumpet, consecrate, call, gather, consecrate them, assemble the elders, gather the children. This sequence is staccato. He lays one command right after another, almost panic-like. This needs to be done with complete urgency. And who is, who is called to this assembly? Literally everyone. Nobody's left out. There's a few, a few groups here that we want to point out to draw out the significance of the assembly to, to, to demonstrate this. He says, gather the children The word here is indicative of young children. Now, usually I just brisk right past something like this, references to children and and whatnot. But as I've continued to get older, I've become keenly aware of how difficult it is to get all of the kids out the door, seated in church for an hour, quiet, and well-behaved. pretty easy for me to get up and go to church it's pretty easy for me to get up and go to a day long assembly not so much for people with young children similarly it would be for nursing infants now nor- normally nursing mothers were exempt for a period of time from assemblies and cultic observation but this assembly for this assembly they aren't it's imperative that they come and finally, he says, let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber. The word here for chamber is actually the room uh, where the bride and the groom would consummate their wedding. In Deuteronomy, for instance, the law exempted newlyweds from military service. Uh, but this newlywed, who hasn't even had time to consummate their, their, their marriage, is called to assemble before the Lord there's something a bit more important to take care of. And what is it that the people are to do? They are to cry out through the voice of their mediators, the priests. And this brings us to our third point in verse 17. Between the vestibule and the altar, let the priests, the ministers of the Lord, weep and say, Spare your people, O Lord, and make not your heritage a reproach, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples? Where is their God? Uh, The first phrase here, through the vestibule or the porch and the altar, means that the priests were placed between the altar and between where the where the sacrifices were made and between the temple. So they go up and they stand between the people and the house of the Lord, and this position indicates that they're representatives, they're mediators. And as mediators between God and His people and on behalf of the people, they are to call out and to weep before the Lord. And what is it exactly that they cry out for? Well, there are two parts to this prayer. The first is that God would have mercy upon His people, that He would spare them. That God's people would be spared, that God would deliver them from this coming and impending day of the Lord judgment in the form of an army. And the second part, which corresponds to this, is that Yahweh would act on his own behalf to uphold his glory and might before the nations. It's a really interesting request. And he does this, as the people say, by not letting his own people, his own inheritance, be put to shame or made a byword or jest among the nations. Now, this is a common thing for the Old Testament people to say, and to bring before God, particularly when they are being invaded from foreign armies. So what's depicted in the invasion of these nations is that as the people of God are put to shame, God himself, represented by the people, is mocked and derided. He's proved to be a weak God. This concept of the people as the Lord's representatives among the nations is really tied First and foremost to circumcision, which was a marking that separated them from the other nations. It showed them as a distinct people of God, through whom he worked and through whom he fought against foreign powers. And also through the whole entire temple cultic system itself. Everything there was to distinguish them as clean from the unclean. As people set apart for God as his representatives in the kingdoms on earth. And so, whenever a foreign army invades and conquers Israel, the inference is our gods are more powerful than your gods. Think the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. It's a standoff. So, they petition here, as his representatives, that it would be pointless for his anger to continue burning against them. They've repented. It would be pointless for them to continue to be put to shame and through them, God himself to be put to shame because they've repented. This is actually one of the distinct reasons why we don't take the name of the Lord, our God, in vain. It deals with all of our actions insofar as we represent God on earth to others. We bear his name. Now, next time... In the following text, we'll see that God actually does answer this this plea for deliverance positively. But here we want to raise the question, why can God hear it? Why can he be merciful and gracious to them? We know that he is. We know that he is because he is a God of promise. I think this sermon could easily be titled Repentance and Forgiveness. But I've titled it... The nations did say, where is their God? Because I want the emphasis to fall on this last phrase. God can answer that cry because it was on the cross that it was not the people of God that was put to shame, but God himself in the person of his son as our representative, as our, as our priest, who was put to shame, who the nations mocked, and who the nations derided. There on that cross, the nations did in effect say, where is their God? The rulers scoffed at him saying, as we read from Luke 23, he saved others, let him save himself. If he is the Christ of God, he is the chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him coming up and offering him sour wine, saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourselves. And there was also an inscription over him entitled, this is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals said, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the angel of the Lord, who appeared to the woman following the resurrection of Christ, said, he is not here. For he is risen. And not only is he risen, but he has ascended, and therefore he entered, as Hebrews says, into the holy place by means of his own blood, securing redemption. Thus, by means of his perfect sacrifice, the curtain was rent in two. Why can God hear our cries and answer them? because Christ himself was scoffed by the nations and delivered over unto death for us. So what? So what? He is now a priest who mediates between God and us, and he lives to ever make intercession for us. So you don't have to go to the temple and ask priests to be your mediators. As priests in Christ, you can go through the great high priest yourself, who is seated on the throne now as judge at the right hand of the Father, to offer repentance. You can go through this priest, a better, more perfect priest, to repent and to rend your heart in pieces in contrition before him. And why should you do this? Because God himself, to answer your cries, allowed himself to be put to shame on your behalf. That's notable. I really think that we should take the call to repentance seriously, not just because of the, the threat of, of doomsday judgment. There's a lot of drama in the repentance called for here, look at look at how demonstrative it is as the whole people gather to steep in contrition to steep in their in their guilt before they cry out. I think it shows us how our hearts should be torn by our own sin and by our own guilt before God, in awe of his graciousness in awe of his goodness to us and I think our habit. I think our habit is to not be torn in this way over our waywardness when we do have grievous and callous sin. Our, our, our natural instinct is actually to write it off on grace, perhaps because we've lost a sense of the majesty uh, uh, of the glory of God or His might or His justice or the grievousness of our sin. We, we, we've failed to comprehend it. This demonstration by the people should show us, I think, how our sin should affect us. It's, it's in an odd way extravagant. It's a big show of things to put on depicting the heart of the people. All oh, everybody gathered together in the temple for this? Probably in sackcloth? And then to rend their clothes once again? I'm not saying we should rend our hearts this way because we're fearful, but because we can actually... Count on his grace and forgiveness since he is the one who calls us to repent this way. It's his grace and his glory that makes us look on our sin and be appalled. That God would would be the one to initiate this this return by calling us, by sending his word, by giving us his word, by preaching and, and giving us his law. Saying through all of it, come to me. Ye who are weary and heavy laden. That's the basis of which Joel makes the call. Return to the Lord because he is gracious and abounding in steadfast love because he is the covenant Lord. The whole scheme shows us the goodness of God to us in Christ. and And I don't know about you, but I want to be torn over my sin. I want my heart to be undone by it. I want my heart to be overcome with a sense of contrition and grief when I look at Him who was pierced for my sake. It cost my Lord His blood, and He was put. Pre- the Lord of glory was put to shame for me. So when I've I've blown it, I don't try to make excuses. I don't try to justify it, hide it, ignore it. I don't ignore how toast I am. I'm sorry, I speak... Colloquially, when I say I, I speak on behalf of all of us there, we don't hide it. We don't run from it. We don't justify it. Write it off on grace. The only argument we can make in that moment is to count on his mercy and his promise to us and plead then in contrition before him our only appeal is for his mercy to us in Jesus and in accordance with his promise, we can be absolutely certain of his abounding love and steadfast mercy. I know that forgiveness is possible because of Christ. I come for forgiveness because of Christ. I know he hears those cries and imparts No judgment to me because the same Lord, that same Lord, now sits as my intercessor and mediator, ever making intercession and mediation for me. And so the same Lord who relents and sends his Savior restores to me my joy and my my favor before him just as he restored to the people of Israel their grain, and their drink offering. So my impulse, though overcome with grief, though overcome with repentance, is confidently trusting and relying in the promise of the forgiveness that I have in Jesus Christ. And it's not just confident. It's joyful, because I get to taste and see that he is good, because he has once again made me pleasing in his sight. He restores his joy to his people by the confidence they have in the forgiveness that they have in Christ when they come to him in lamentation and repentance for their sin. Let's pray. Father we ask in the name of Jesus Christ that you would give us a spirit of genuine sorrow and genuine contrition for our own sin. We ask that we would be pierced to the bone, bone that we would rejoice in your tender love and mercy and that the, in the favor that you give to us in Christ Jesus and that you have made us pleasing in your sight. And we ask that we would not be overcome with terror that we are not pleasing but confidence that because of Christ we are forever right with you and await the day that we will enter your house ourselves forevermore. This we ask in the name of Jesus. Amen.